0: Hello, and welcome to What A Jazz Podcast. I'm your host, Elze Vishnevskita. And this week I'm chatting with the blues dancer, educator, event organizer all the way from London, Vicky Moore. We sit down to talk about blues community, changes that happened post-COVID, Vicky's story of getting into dancing and teaching dance. Uh, Finally, how she got to organize five events a year, one of which is the teacher trainings. We discussed a little bit the pillars of good teaching and things that we're missing as teachers. Finally, we dive into Vicky's essay on cultural appropriation and we get into topics of African-American dance aesthetics, the role of sexuality and sensuality in dance, and how can we teach that as educators. Vicky also shares her approach to partner dancing and the inequalities that she still sees between leaders and followers in the community, and finally tackling the imposter syndrome as a dancer and as an educator. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. And without further ado, put your hands together for Vicky. Hello. Hello. Very nice to have you on the podcast. I think you're the first blues dancer. I feel so special. Yeah. So lovely to be here. It's also, uh, you know, it's, I think the, the Lindy Hop and blues community still kind of goes their separate ways a lot of times. So we don't get to see each other so often. Which is um, very true. And I want to see you more. <laughs> yeah. So I'm very curious to talk a little bit and get, yeah, get, you know, your story, but also in general, like how, how's the community and the blues dancing? Because I know, to be honest, very little about it. <laughs>
1: And I'm very happy to talk about anything you want to know and answer any questions. Yeah, I'm very excited to share everything.
0: Maybe just what are you currently doing, working on? What's happening in your life
1: at this moment? Wow, things are really intense. So the blues community right now globally is exploding. I feel like there are more events now than even pre-COVID. everywhere. Um, So Adamo and I, so for those of you that don't know, my dance partner is Adamo. um, We're traveling all the time and we're really trying to find a better work-life balance. So we're trying to say no to events and stay at home a little bit more. But it's really hard when new events are popping up. And I'm sure you find this in the Lindy community. A lot of the organizers are friends. They're people that you care about. So you want to say yes. You want to support the, the growing worldwide dance scene. Um, so yeah, there's a lot of traveling happening. Um, and we have an online dance school that we actually started during lockdown. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I thought it was going to be a lockdown project. I thought, you know, we need to, cause we're full-time dancers. So obviously overnight when COVID hit, we lost all our work, all our income. And we were like, right, we've got to adapt. We've got to change. Let's build a website. So we created, um, quite quickly an online school that in all yeah, in all honesty, I really thought as soon as the world opened up again, that would just fizzle out, and maybe it would, you know, be something in the background, but we wouldn't really keep it up. And the, even that is growing; that is getting more members. People are joining. People seem to really see the value in having a kind of platform that they can learn on, as well as the international stuff, or as well as going to weekly classes. So that's actually a load of work mm-hmm. <laughs> we kind of accidentally gave ourselves because now we're traveling. <laughs> all the time and trying to um, keep this online dance school ticking over and developing. And we're now in the process this week of launching a brand new website just because it's got so big, it's got much bigger than we thought it would, that we kind of can't cope with it. So we're having a web developer create a new online dance school that's going to be much more, like much more robust, much easier Mm -hmm. to navigate. And the amount of courses we've now got on it needed something a lot stronger. So Lots happening.
0: Amazing. What? Yeah. What? What do you think are the reasons that the blues community is exploding even more than before COVID? You know,
1: I have, I have no idea. I don't know if it is just. I feel like everything that happens in the blues community, in terms of numbers, is just a little bit behind other communities. So I feel like it's just trickling. Like people, obviously, Lindy Hop is is huge. Um. And I think people who have maybe found that 10 years ago, five years ago, are now discovering blues through that or through other forms. But I think also now for the first time, blues is a dance in of itself. Like we have a lot of people who don't do any Lindy Hop or don't do any other swing dances, but have discovered blues. Um, Why? I don't know. Maybe it is this, certainly for me, this need after COVID of physical contact, of something of like togetherness and just... And it's not hard, right? Blues is not a hard dance, but hands up. Like it's not the world's most difficult dance. It's very simple. And it's supposed to be. It's supposed mm-hmm. to be something that anyone, anywhere, really, I think, can connect to, can connect to the music and can have a really sort of emotional connection to themselves, mm-hmm. to the music, to their partner. And it's it can be something really special, I think, if you let yourself go and become a bit vulnerable, in that moment um, and maybe that's just what the world needs right now
0: yeah it's very interesting I kind of want to hold on to the idea of um, the complicatedness or simplicity of a dance and I, I think about that in, in Lindy Hop and as well how how Naturally, when you're in a community, you want to push the dance. So the dance keeps changing and sometimes gets more complicated, right? But at the same time, at the essence, I feel like Lindy Hop is also, it's a social dance where people met each other to connect. And uh, there's this balance of making it simple enough, but at the same time trying to appreciate and push the art form forward and experiment as well. But the point of entry shouldn't become too high for people to just come and connect to each other
1: yeah exactly and I think um maybe a lot of it is in how it's taught oh I've I've got so many things thoughts in my head now I'm trying to work out which order to say them in um yeah that point of entry is I think really vital especially for blues because obviously I think a lot of people listening to this podcast will have heard you know, blues, or oh, it's a sexy dance, or, oh no, I don't like blues. It's too slow or it's it's sleazy or something. So already coming into blues, there is almost a barrier for a lot of people to even enter because they're like before they've even done a class, they don't like it. Mm-hmm. They think they don't like it. So we're fighting that slightly. Um, plus, yeah, for me, that point of entry should be or the way I teach beginners for a first class is this is a bar dance. This is something that was not formalized. It wasn't, it shouldn't really be taught in a studio. It is something that developed over many, many, many years in Black American communities as a thing to connect to each other, to connect to the music, to connect to yourself, to have a sense of freedom. And we, I, I believe that we need to start from that place. So come into a room, yes, maybe it's a dance studio. I mean, we used to teach our weekly classes in pubs in London. That was perfect. Mm. That's where I think that belongs, right? But the way we try and um, initiate people into it or get them to start is this is a bar dance. Listen to the music. Do what your body wants to do to this music. Yes, there is technique. Yes, the, the more aware you are of different techniques and how to partner and how to use your body and body awareness and all this stuff. Yes, that will make you a quote unquote better dancer. But for me, that's not where blues should start. Blues should start with you dancing to the music, getting the music in your body the way you would at a live concert, you know, just Mm. grooving and feeling that and then hopefully falling in love with it to the point where you're like, okay, yeah, now I'll start to spend some time working on my posture or working on my understanding of rhythm or working on how to lead and follow things in a really fluid way or things like that. But all of that will come with time. But Mm -hmm. I think to get people in, it needs to be that initial, like, you are here to have a party. Like, that's what blues was. It was dance music. It was played in bars. And yes, sometimes it's slow. And yes, sometimes it can be feel or sound miserable. But it's also there to, like, have a good time to. That was the Mm -hmm. point of that music. For sure. Uh, Yourself, if
0: I'm not mistaken, you started with Lindy Hop at first.
1: Are we talking in swing dances? or Yes, in swing dances. Okay, yes. Yes. Lindy Hop. And
0: um, what attracted you to blues or how was that transition?
1: Uh I very accidentally fell into it. So I am, yeah, I started Lindy Hopping, just a hobby, you know. And then one evening met uh, Adamo on the Lindy Hop dance floor in Wild Times in London on a Tuesday night and (laughs) where I was a complete beginner and I thought... uh, Adamo was Italian. I thought he was French because all I knew was that he had a funny accent. But I really liked dancing with him. And uh, I remember going home that night and being like, oh, I hope I see that cute French guy again. (laughs) (laughs) And so like, I had this, this, but I didn't know his name, didn't know who he was. And then um, about a month later, a friend of mine, I think he just said to me, he was like, oh, come along to this blues night. I think you'll like it. So I just went along for fun. And Adamo was teaching. And I was like, oh, it's the cute French guy. Great. And we had a nice connection. So we started chatting. Um, and then quite soon after we started dating. So it was a kind of me and Adama were a couple first. And then I, because he was teaching blues already, I then got into it. And I was like, oh, yeah, I really love this thing. Um, didn't love it necessarily more than Lindy. It was just I loved both. I did mm-hmm. both. Um, and then I guess the reason I ended up focusing on it was just that we got hired. Like I accidentally stepped in to cover a lesson once because Adama's teaching partner was sick. That went really well. It was at a festival in London. Um, And from off the back of that, I think we got three offers of work like in in France and somewhere else, the international gigs. And I was just completely shocked. I was like, but I'm not even a teacher, what? Mm -hmm. Um, And so we kind of very quickly snowballed into people asking us to teach together. Um, and I guess it was a niche. There was not. There weren't really any. There wasn't really at that time. Eleven years ago, there were not many people teaching blues, but mm. there were hundreds of people teaching Lindy. And so when that when it looked like, oh, hang on, maybe I'm going to do this for a career. Maybe I'm going to enter teaching. It made sense that we continued the blues path that we or that I accidentally fell onto. Mm. And the rest is history, I suppose. <laughs> so uh, it's been it's been eleven years. It's been eleven years, yeah. 10 years
0: full-time. Wow. And now you're also organizing events together. Yeah.
1: Yeah. We organize um, about five events a year because we're mad. <laughs> you are. That's <laughs> way too many to it's organize. Just, yeah. <laughs> um, the thing is, so we, we, I don't know, they all have a purpose. I think for us, the events that we run, we're very conscious of not just creating another event just to create an event. Right, But they're, they've all sprung up because we've seen a need in the community and we're like, well, maybe we need to fill that need. Like, If no one else is filling it, then we can help. So um, we run a festival in Madrid along with Alba and Gaston. The four of us run that together. And that's a Spanish Blues festival. We run that twice a year because for some reason one isn't enough. Don't ask. <laughs> <laughs> um, and that started... 10 years ago, actually, it's the 10 year anniversary this year. And that was started originally by Alba and Adamo, basically because there was no blues in Spain. Alba was living in Madrid and she really wanted to set up a blues community in Madrid. And so Adamo basically said, well, why not run a festival and get people excited? Like, if there aren't any blues dancers, this is one way to get them in. Mm -hmm. Um, So that started essentially to kickstart the blues community in Spain, which it now has served its purpose. There's now so many blues scenes and so many blues dancers in Spain. Then a few years later, Adamo and I, um, we're both trained teachers outside of the dance world. Um, and we just really saw this need for better teaching really in the dance worlds. Um, there are a lot of great dancers, but not necessarily with the skills, with the teaching skills and considering we, that's what essentially we get paid to do, right? We get paid to be teachers. We don't get paid to be dancers, sadly, in mm-hmm. our community, So we saw this need of like, hey, maybe we can help people, um, especially local people who maybe don't have any support, sort of people who are teaching locally in their small scenes. So we set up a week long teacher training because people kept asking us to, you know, do a couple of hours of teacher training tagged on to a festival. Or can you just could you stay one extra day and do some teacher training with our local teachers? And we did it, but it never felt like it was enough you know you just dig into one topic in a few hours and then you have to leave and you're like well that's not enough to become a teacher and to be fair a week isn't enough either mm-hmm. um but we then developed a, yeah this week-long course called Bluesology which next year we're going to run twice we think because we had so many it was so much interest and then so what's that so there's two in Spain teacher training Last year or two months ago, we ran for the first time an event called The Jump, which again, it's a week long thing, completely different to a festival because we were noticing kind of a lack of time in festivals to dig in deep into details of technique. Mm -hmm. And again, we felt like, okay, if we did a, a week long thing, we can actually spend the time geeking out about anatomy, you know, all the things that all those jargon words that people throw around, grounding, frame, core which really in a one-hour class at a festival and you're jumping between groups and maybe one group has four different teaching couples over a weekend who possibly all have different ideas and different concepts that sometimes even um, clash with each other. Mm -hmm. It can be very confusing for people. So we thought, right, let's set up a week-long event where people can really start to understand their own bodies. Um, So we ran that two months ago and I think it went really well. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So we'll do that again next year um and then the last one is more Adamo runs um an event in his hometown in Italy in the summer and I help him out with that um and that is absolutely beautiful it started as um a kind of long weekend two years ago and then last year because it's quite hard to get to but it's worth it it's worth the effort it's in this tiny village on the top of a hilltop in the countryside in Italy Um, absolutely magical. Everything's outside. They get in a huge dance floor and a huge stage and they convert the the piazza in the middle of the village. Um, But because it's quite hard to get to, he's extended it to six days. So people kind of go and they take a holiday and they dance and they learn to make pasta and they do wine tasting. And yeah, it's amazing. Um, Sign me up. Oh my God. (laughs) Um, And this is why we ended up running five events because each Mm. one is so different and so special and we just love them like they're our Mm -hmm. babies and we put a lot of heart and soul into making sure that they really provide something that isn't already being offered in the community
0: yes yeah Uh, i have uh, so many questions but the first one (laughs) is um how do you balance organizing teaching and kind of working on these things and also having enough time to dance and explore creative process um, um, on the dance floor with your partner, with yourself. I don't. <laughs>
1: <laughs> um, no, that's a really, really good question. I have to admit, I wish I had more time to to um, create because I think that is the one area of my life at the moment that I'm lacking. Um, it's been a long time since I did a choreography or anything like that, where I like trained for myself and performed something. Um. But I've recently been working with a friend who actually lives in Vilnius and me and her, um, Maria Melenkova, we've Mm. created a duet together, which we'll be performing in December. So that creative process was amazing. Mm. We had to squeeze it in. You know, when we were at an event teaching together, we spent an extra day there and we just like, right, we have to get this done. But that was very inspiring. And that Mm. excited me. And I was like, oh, I wish I had more time to just be in a studio and create, but with no pressure, with no time pressure. Um, For Adama and I, most of our creation just happens socially. We just love social dancing. Um, Mm. You know, every event we go to, we've essentially got most often Friday, Saturday, Sunday night to just social dance all night. So for me, that is a creative process in itself, I suppose, is dancing with each other, but also dancing with anyone on that dance floor is practicing, having fun, coming up with new ideas, trying new things. Um, that's probably the main place that I get to to express and be free to, to create.
0: Yes. Uh, I had this conversation with uh, Maria Norelian, and we talked about the idea of how, you know, art form can also happen. Like it also happens on a social dance floor. A lot of times we're like, it's only the performance or a choreography you make. But the social dancing in itself is such an artistic thing when you yeah. connect with someone and express yourself.
1: Definitely. And I you know what we do is a social dance. It shouldn't need an audience. Mm-hmm. In fact, I'm probably more creative when I don't have an audience. Right? Cuz you the pressure's gone. There's no expectations. I feel um I do feel a lot of expectations put on me, I suppose, mm-hmm. as someone who's been in the scene a long time and teaches a lot and it's like looked up to in a certain way that if it's a performance, people they want something from you but in a social dance i I don't feel that i don't feel like anyone's wanting anything from me it's just me being me to that music and it's it's really liberating actually
0: yeah it's something i love the most watching um for what i've seen in blues and lindy like improvisation and like really this magic that can can happen and, uh, and if, if I watched any videos, I usually just try to s- search for the ones where it's improvised. And I'm like, this is my, my favorite thing to
1: see, like what happens, you know, on the dance yeah. floor. I mean, Adamo and I haven't done a choreography together since 2016. <sighs> Every performance we've done is improvised because we just were like, that's what we love. That's what we do. And for us, that's what the dance should be. So um, yeah, people often say, when are you doing your next choreo? And we're like, we're not. (laughs) Give us a song and we'll dance to it. (laughs) Let's see how it
0: goes. (laughs) I also want to talk about teaching and the teacher training. Um, We we used to organize a teacher training before COVID in Vilnius. And then we did one now this summer and uh, it changed a lot since the first time we did it. And now uh, I feel like in a way, it's become more challenging to organize because I'm way more aware of um telling people how things should be done, right? It's like as a teacher, I can share my experience, but trying like to find a way where it's just the way I do it, mm-hmm. and it's not the way, right? Um so how do you balance that when you organize the teacher training of That's finding
1: questions? Um, we, it's funny, we get quite a few people who come and I think they get a little annoyed because we don't tell them how to do it.
0: Mm-hmm. They, I think
1: sometimes they come with this expectation that they're going to leave a week and they're going to have this curriculum set out and they're going to be told what they should teach at what stage and how to teach it. And we very clearly tell them on the first day, we're like, that's not what we're here to do because that is not how this dance works. Like we are not going to tell you what to teach or exactly how to teach it, but we want to give you the tools to be able to work that out for yourself. So we invest a lot of time in discussing values. So we we talk about we make them think about um, why do they want to be a teacher? Firstly, like what are your values as a teacher and what are you going to bring to your teaching? Um, what are your do you know what the values of the dance are that you're you say you want to teach this thing? Well, do you know what this thing is? Do you know what's important in this dance or do you just know some moves? And mm. how are you as a teacher going to balance your values? with the values of the dance and the expectations of your students and we have a long discussions about that but we try never to tell them what to do but we just try to get them thinking Um, we spend a lot of time on communication skills so we work on um, nonviolent communication and like communication skills between partnerships so you and your teaching partner especially for people who don't have a set teaching partner, but maybe are teaching with lots of different people. How do you navigate those? And just trying to give them the skills to have, you know, good communication. We also run, we get an external person in to run a workshop on communication skills and presentation skills to a group. So how do you, maybe in a room of 30, 40, 50 people, depending on how big your class is, how do you hold that space? How do you present your class to people? How do you talk? What words do you use? Um, How do you use the tone of your voice, your eye contact, your body language? So we try not to be too um, prescriptive in the teacher training, but rather give them lots of tools, you know, explain Mm. what a curriculum is. Do they want to create one? How do they want to create one? Um, How do you give feedback? What, you know, why is feedback useful? How do you give it um, to be constructive? What are the different types of feedback? Um, And then probably the one that, not most useful, they're all useful. But another topic we spend a lot of time on is analyzing their own dancing. So they understand how to break down what they're doing. So they might do it completely differently to me, but they have to understand what they do. Mm. I've been in so many classes um, and the dancers, the teachers are amazing dancers, but you can tell when they start to explain something that they don't actually know what they do because they they do it so naturally, they've done it for so long. And it's like, unless you can really analyze, okay, what is it in my body? what What's happening? So I can pass that on to my students. Um, so yeah, that's kind of how we balance that. So we try to give them the tools to be better teachers the way that they want to teach. Mm. Um, and we're thinking next year of changing it. So it's not just blues, but we're thinking actually what we, I think what we teach applies to any, any dancing. So you could come, and learn if you're a Lindy Hop teacher, Balboa teacher, blues teacher, solo jazz, anything. And the skills are essentially the same because they're teaching mm-hmm. skills. And then yeah. you just apply them to whatever it is you want to teach.
0: Yeah. yeah. How did you create the program? What was the process of finding these pillars of what is good teaching?
1: It took a few years, like all festivals, I think. It um, developed over time. It started with though so the basis of it was essentially looking at the course that I did. So... I did a degree in dance and choreography. So I have a a BA honours degree in in that when part of that was teaching dance. Mm. Um, And then after I graduated, I did another course in specifically how to teach adults because it's, you know, obviously quite different to doing a teaching school kids or teaching teenagers, teaching adults is quite different. So I did um, a course in that. And then the first Bluesology was essentially based on the template that I'd learned in that course. So going through all the different pedagogical stages and what they call the teaching cycle. So the teaching cycle starts with understanding, identifying the needs and expectations of your students, then designing and planning your classes, then delivering your classes, then um, giving feedback and assessment to your students, and then evaluating your own teaching in order to change it, to make it better, to then prepare for your next class. And the cycle continues. And so that's how we base or that's how we structure the week is based on that cycle, um, Mm. that teaching cycle.
0: What do you think people are
1: struggling with the most in in these teacher trainings? I think it's actually the communication side. I think a lot of people have wonderful ideas. They plan in detail, um, but they don't necessarily know what they're doing, like I mentioned before. Mm -hmm. And then when it comes to explaining it to a group or engaging a group or really trying to get that information across, they struggle. There's a lot of looking down, a lot of mumbling, a lot of way too much talking for my liking in a dance class. People have paid to dance, not to stand still and listen. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think it's those those things. Yeah, I think people generally... (sighs) It comes from a good place. I think people generally have a desire to over-explain. They have all this knowledge in their heads and they're like, oh, we want to give all of this information to our students because we want them to have this knowledge too. And I think what people find really hard is understanding what of that knowledge is actually essential right now. Maybe only two points. That's all they need. And then they can work out a lot for themselves or they can dance, they can try. And I think a lot of new teachers... And some more experienced teachers, to be honest, um, have this desire to to just give all the information at once. And often it's more than is necessary.
0: Mm, so true. I've seen it so many times and also have fallen into that, you know, when you're so excited to share something yeah. like, I've been talking for way too long now. And you're like, put the music on, go. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's also interesting because there are people that are, I think, so good in the group setting in the class. But outside of the classroom, they're actually really shy and, and kind of introverted. But, uh, yeah, it's an interesting change that happens when people can, can be okay talking to a big group, Mm -hmm. but maybe with smaller, like one-on-one, they're like, they're really struggling um so also like it's just everyone is so different you know because I feel like people when 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 you see a teacher you presume that that's a very like extroverted person just great with people and crowds but that's not necessarily that you can also just develop certain skills to be good in that setting yeah and maybe in another setting you're actually a more close person
1: yeah definitely. I think you know if you learn communication skills or presentation skills you can present a class wonderfully. Doesn't mean that you're an extroverted person. And mm-hmm. I actually think it's really hard. I don't think you need to, you shouldn't have to be an extrovert to be a good teacher or to get hired or to be considered a good dancer. I think it's it's not fair. Mm-hmm. You know just I mean a lot of I, I guess I'm I'm balanced between the two. I love to be with people um but god I need to recharge alone. Mondays I don't speak to anyone <laughs> because I feel like I give so much in a weekend and it absolutely drains me mm-hmm. completely. Um, yeah. So then I have to be alone for like the rest of the week until the next festival. And I'm like, okay, now I can be with people again. For sure. What do you do to recharge? Um, I love to read. I don't get much chance. I have a puppy, so I don't get much chance mm-hmm. to recharge anymore because he's mad. <laughs> um, he's only seven <laughs> months old and he wants attention all the time um but just some alone time quiet you know listening mm. to some music but yeah just being on my own yeah balance Yeah. Um,
0: have you had some teachers or mentors that really formed who you are as a dancer or maybe as a person
1: yeah oh the first one that comes to mind has got nothing to do with swing or blues um she was a teacher of mine at university. And for, <laughs> for the first six months of classes with her, everybody hated her. We couldn't stand her because she was so harsh on us. Um, she always answered a question with a question, drove us mad. You know, you'd ask a question, and she'd be like, well, why do you think that? Da, 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 da. Um, and then six months into training with her, everything clicked. And I was like, oh, she's doing it on purpose. Like she wants us to understand what we're doing, not just to be spoon fed, not just to be dancers, but to be, she always used to say, I want you to be thinking dancers. I want you to know what you're doing, to make choices, to understand why you're doing what you're doing, all of that. And so her her hardness definitely improved my dancing, partly because I wanted to impress her but also because she really made me think. And she was right. Every time one of us would ask a question, we did know the answer. Somewhere we knew the answer. (laughs)
0: Um,
1: So she was amazing. Um, And I put that in, that I think has informed my teaching a lot. We always, especially with high level groups, masterclasses, teachers, we always say to them, you've got to be thinking dancers. We are not just going to give you the answers to these things. Like here's an idea, try it out, work it out for yourself. Because once you can work it out for yourself, you can do it on the social floor or you can create rather than just copy. You can start to create if you understand how something is formed or how a movement works or how your body works. Um, and then Damon Stone, who is a um, a black American dancer who is current, you know, a current dancer today mm-hmm. in the blue scene. Um, he's probably someone I would consider my mentor. He has taught me most of what I know from blues. He's, taught me all the history, all the sort of cultural importance. He's the one that I turn to when I doubt that I should be teaching this thing, when I start to have, you know, doubts about cultural appropriation and fears and all of this stuff, then I will message Damon and and we have long chats about all of the important things happening and being discussed at the moment. And he, yeah, I have a lot to thank Damon for.
0: Mm. That is so important to to have someone that you can trust and you can, you know, you trust their opinion as well and to, to bounce back the ideas too.
1: Yeah. And he's Mm. so, um, honest, brutally honest Mm. sometimes, but that's Mm. what you need. Right. I don't want to have a mentor who will just sugarcoat things and wrap me in cotton wool. I need a mentor Mm. who, if I ask something stupid, he'll tell me that's stupid, you know, Mm -hmm. like (laughs) Mm -hmm. he'll tease me for saying a certain thing or for being so white. And we're able to have that kind of rapport, and it's great. Yeah, uh, I think that's a good
0: uh, segue to the to your essay. Cool. So you got a you got a master's degree in education. Yeah, during that was, COVID times. That was my COVID project. <laughs> like you know, people were baking breads, and other people were just getting master degrees, of course. Um, and you wrote a paper on cultural appropriation and dance. Yeah. Um, first of all. <laughs> why 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 did you decide to study masters and how did that paper um
1: uh, become reality what was the process like so i decided to start a masters mainly cuz i'd always wanted to do one i was mm. yeah i like i've danced since i was really young i've danced since i was 3 i've danced my whole life but i've also always been really academic and so when i um graduated from my undergrad I always knew it was something I, was, I just love learning. It was just something I was like, oh, one day, you know, I'll continue my university learning and I'll do a master's. And then I got this job and was like, well, it makes absolutely no sense <laughs> to do a master's because it means taking time off work, paying a lot of money. That really, the master's won't change my career. If I'm going to stay as a blues dance instructor, I don't need a master's. I'm not going to get paid anymore for having it, you know? Mm-hmm. But then when COVID hit and we lost all our work and I had all this free time, I thought, well, now's the time like when else am I going to be gifted this this time at home in this way so that's why I did it then um and I really 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 wanted to understand on a deeper level things about um race politics and cultural appropriation because of what I do um and all the discussions that have been happening for a long time in the blues community. And definitely they were heightened during COVID, I think particularly in the Lindy Hop community. Um, I wanted to understand it beyond what you see on social media. I think social media can be very dangerous. And um, there was a lot of, good interesting stuff being shared but it wasn't necessary you know what are the sources you can't always find out what the sources of this stuff is so I just wanted to understand that on a deeper level so one of my modules at university was called the sociology of race in education and it was UK based because that's where I did my master's but um it looked at basically how race impacts education in many different ways you know and how racism is so systematic in the education Mm -hmm. system in lots of different ways, but then we had complete free reign with our topic, with our project. We could write anything we wanted, and our our tutor encouraged us to do a critical reflection of how race has impacted our own lives. And so that was my opportunity to go right. I want to really dig into essentially my complicity in the cultural appropriation of a of an African American dance form, and how I as a a white British woman, you know, how have I ended up teaching this thing, and what processes have I gone through in that in like the past 10 years.
0: Mm. it um, I got the opportunity to read it and I'm very, very happy and very grateful that you shared it with me. Uh, what really s- strikes me is the, it's really a deep personal reflection. It was not like an academic approach to what is cultural appropriation and, and navigating that, but really your own experience. So was it how... How was that, like putting that so personally? Was that also your aim to really just reflect through yourself rather than analyze it in a more academic way?
1: Yeah, so uh, like I said, our tutor encouraged us to do that and it was Mm. quite rare. This was the only module where we were encouraged to do a personal reflection. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think because she understood just how personal race is and what a huge impact it has on everyone's lives in a very different way and what race means to different people. Mm. Um, it was one of the hardest things I've ever done. I won't lie. It was, Mm. I I needed to do it for myself, for my, um, yeah, I, I, I felt like it was quite cathartic in a way and it was a process I needed to go through. Um, but yes, it was difficult to really think about what, what have you done? What have I done? How could I have done it differently? What impact might that have had that I didn't understand at the time? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how have I explained things in classes that maybe I shouldn't have explained them that way? Have I have I done some damage? Have I accidentally said something that actually thinking back was that racist, even though I was trying to be appreciative and it makes you question everything.
0: Mm-hmm. And I was
1: very, very close to quitting my job many times mm. <laughs> during that essay. Mm uh there's a moment where you where you talk
0: about ballet and having learned ballet and how that informed your understanding of technique um and you know what we call um uh, beautiful dancing let's say all the, the the visuality of it um and i don't know how, how you were searching for it to be more accurate to the values of african-american dance style and how where are you right now with this may be search, but and, and other things that you talk about, I imagine it's still a continuous
1: process. Yeah, definitely. I think for those of us, okay, I can only speak for me. I'm, you know, I am a white British woman who grew up with a, a 20 years of doing classical ballet and what they call jazz and tap, which are not <laughs> anything like the tap that we know or the jazz that we know now. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't change that. I can't change my background. I can't change the way my body moves or the way my body is. And I can't change some of the ingrained ideas, I suppose, or ingrained ways of moving. But I can change how I view things. And I've definitely, my body had changed how it moves. You know, I I hope I don't look like a ballet dancer anymore. Um, And how I, what I value has changed. So I think in the essay, I write about, Probably in a far more academic way, but essentially um, judging. For example, when I first started to judge, I this is this is a whole nother topic. But the competitions in our dance scene, especially in the blue scene, you know, people are asked to judge with no training. They're not taught how to judge. They're like, oh, you're teaching this weekend? Here you go. Here's a clipboard. Judge. And I remember the first time, I was terrified. I was like judge what? <laughs> you know mm-hmm. there are no there's no categories there's no point system there's nothing like what are <laughs> you asking me to judge who who look, who I prefer? Um so I think judging in this in this um dance scene is tricky anyway. But um I definitely I've learned to change my gla- like to put on different glasses almost of like okay I'm going to watch the dance floor not with my past ingrained ideas of what is beautiful like a a clean line or a nice soft hand or the correct posture which is completely different in ballet to, to blues but I'm going to put my blues glasses on and go right who is dancing in the way that the dance asks them to dance so prioritizing rhythm prioritizing polycentric movement prioritizing um lead-follow conversation and sass and all different, you know, shapes and broken lines versus straight lines, all these different things. Um, But it's a process, definitely. And it's, but I think it's something that if we are teaching this dance and we're not from the culture that it comes from, it's a process that we should actively be doing Mm. to deserve to teach it, to deserve to to be in the position that we're in. You know, Mm -hmm. we do need to do the work.
0: For sure. And also how different aesthetics look on different people, you know, and whether it's your body and I like different bodies move differently. And sometimes it's just, it's hard because I feel we still like when, you know, when we judge, it's like you kind of see your, yourself in there and you're trying to reflect through your experience, but like looking past it and looking how the dance um, is on someone else and then, do they have these values that are the values of the dance? It's such a it's such a deep reflection, and a lot of times, especially when at the moment of judging, you don't have much time. So it's like doing that work continuously, yeah, to be able to 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 make choices that are more accurate to the values that you have.
1: Yeah, and something I've been thinking a lot about recently is are these things, because I think a lot of people are trying, a lot of people are really trying to connect more to what the dance is asking, but are they being put on externally or are they coming from inside? Hmm. And for me, it's it's really obvious when you see the two stay next to each other, someone who maybe has done a class and they've been told, oh, in, in African-American dance, they make asymmetric shapes and angles. And so suddenly this, this body that hasn't embodied this idea but just does the shapes because they've been told looks very awkward and almost like mimicry or grotesque I don't Mm want to be too controversial in what I say but you know it just doesn't look quite right whereas there might be someone else next to them doing similar shapes but they've clearly understood them from a much deeper level and the shapes are coming from inside because the music is making them move in a certain way not because they've been told by someone that you have to make this shape, but because that shape is happening because of what they hear in the music, mm. and there is such a difference. And I think that, to me, that's where I'm at at the moment, where I'm really trying to see if there's a way that I can teach it that isn't, doesn't make people do the first version where they just put these shapes on and pretend to be something they're not, because that's not authentic and it's not. It doesn't look good. It it looks. Oh, I can't think of the word, but yeah, it looks put on. It looks fake.
0: Yeah, like yeah. forced as well, yeah. right? It's like you're trying to force something out
1: of your body that doesn't want to want to go there. <laughs> yeah, and I think I hope this isn't too controversial a thing to say, but I think especially if that is a a white p- a body mimicking shapes that were originally danced by black bodies, there's a lot of problematic stuff there where you're like, well are you just copying? Are you trying to impersonate a black body? you know, linking back, and I write about this in my essay, um, yeah, linking back to some very problematic things from the past about mimicking black bodies. Whereas if it is okay, my body moves this way and the, because the music is making it move this way and I'm going to respect and honour the roots of the dance and the values of the dance, but it's going to do it in the way that my body does it, I think it looks and it feels a lot more in line with what, what should be happening in the dance. Mm-hmm. to me yeah i don't and know if that was explained well enough
0: <laughs> for sure yeah and, and it's also um for for a long time i remember the value of looking beautiful <laughs> Ooh, what does that even mean <laughs> exactly but it was like when you know because it, it, probably in many in some maybe dances you you know beautiful can be described in so many ways but i just remember like learning the dance and the goal was like to try to make it look beautiful or try to have nice lines and and that being accentuated in classes. And, and you never really know what it is, but you can kind of look at yourself and be like, mm, that's not beautiful. And like all of this, like really questioning the values and the aesthetics of this particular dance makes that definition of beautiful. Like, you know, it's like such a broader thing. Yeah. Um, but still, I feel like learning you know a lot of times like you have mirrors in the studio and and you can catch people like in the class you know they're like checking their lines but then like what are you checking for what are you yeah. trying to to look for in in the mirror in the reflection is that the beauty understanding that you have or is it the beauty understanding of the dance like it's such a tricky tricky thing but you know like it, I think it also comes from the from the tradition we learn the dance
1: in the studios in front of the mirror, trying to make say, certain yeah. shapes and lines. And because there's also, you know, a discussion about really, especially in blues, like mirrors have no place in a blues class. Mm. You know, it's it's not it's not a dance that should be danced formally. You're not you shouldn't be copying anyone. Really, you know, you're not trying to mimic the shape of someone else because that one of the biggest things about blues, and my belief is also, Lindy, um, individualism. You know, you've got Mm -hmm. to be you. You've got to bring something unique to the dance. So if you're in front of a mirror trying to copy someone else's body, that's stripping away so much of your uniqueness, Mm -hmm. you know, keeping your personality and the way that your body moves. Um, There's a lot, There's I've been doing a lot of reading about, you know, how to not only what we teach but how we teach in order to align more with the roots of the dance and the sort of values of the dance and a lot of certainly how i was taught and still i you know still how i teach now sometimes and i'm trying to change it as much as possible but it's very um teacher centric you know it's it's very much either a circle with the teacher in the middle and you do what the teacher says because the teacher knows everything or there's lines and we're all facing the mirrors and it's not um it's not how these dances were ever developed or taught within the communities that they were developed in. It was much more about learning from each other, learning from community, peer learning, learning through doing rather than learning by standing and listening. Mm. Um, So it's also, I'm very interested now um, at trying to see how can I adapt my teaching as well and how I teach things to be more in line with this feeling of community, less teacher centric, more, maybe facilitating people's learning for themselves. I don't know. I'm kind of exploring new ideas of how to teach as well. Mm. For me, what's very
0: helpful and inspiring is when I, when I'm able to take classes from other people um, and not not only in the swing, in swing world, but just to see how, how is that approach, especially people like if it's an African-American dance, people from that culture and closer to that, like the last class I've taken was actually in London. Um, me and Peter, we we were there for a few days and we took a Chicago house class. Oh, nice. And uh, there's a dancer, King Charles. I don't know if you know him. He's he's a Chicago footwork and Chicago house teacher. And his class was, it was very difficult, of course, for us. But <laughs> at the same time, it was just, he, you know, like he was precise on things he was teaching. But at the same time, it was not like, okay, now we're all doing the same like you have to copy my lines it was really like infused with a lot of like his own personality the history of the dance and then just really like attacking the dance and just doing it many times rather I than like it. okay now you all have to have my lines or shapes or anything you know so it was just like again taking classes like this uh for me it's it's a big learning moment to be like mm, what can i what can i take from this
1: and and try to bring closer in the teaching yeah, definitely. I mean, I did, um, I've st- done a lot of classes in West African dance. Mm. You know, you, you learn by doing, you, they do a thing, you copy it, you keep repeating it. They add something. They very rarely break it down. They hardly ever talk. There's very little explaining. It's all about the music, the beat and and dancing and moving. And it's incredible. It's incredible. And so I'm also trying to find a way that can my, particularly when I teach solo, because I think solo and partnered is different when you teach So mm-hmm. you do need to explain a bit more with partnered things because there's another person, you know, <laughs> and there's, yeah, you've got to explain how to connect and how things work together. But in solo classes, I'm really interested in how can I get my teaching closer to, to yeah. Other classes like you explained or mm-hmm. like the West African classes that I take. Um, yeah how can it be more about just moving and getting your body going um so yeah it's exciting to keep changing and I think this is why after 11 years of teaching I'm still completely in love with the job Mm. because I haven't just gone oh yeah I'm a teacher and I'm gonna just do the same thing all the time it's like how can I get better how can I improve yes
0: uh you also talk about another very interesting topic I've been quite a complicated one but uh i've actually been kind of wanting to talk about this with someone uh and i think that could be a good chance you talk about sexuality in dance and how the teaching of blues and maybe the scene got desexualized um and it's and i I say it's tricky because while there are the values of african-american dancing we've also gone through Me Too times in the community. Yeah. And the, the the mix of two and finding what means, what, what does it mean to be sexual in the hands and bringing that, uh, I think is a very, very interesting topic. So maybe could, can you talk a bit more about your take on this?
1: Yes, I would love to. I love this topic. Um, a little bit of background, I suppose. So when I started blues, it was the time period of like, the sleazy blues room I suppose at a Lindy Hopper bed right So, (laughs) (laughs) so essentially that is what I'd heard a lot um and then when I started teaching it we had this real drive to like tell people it wasn't sexy because we wanted to make it a proper dance you know we were like really like this is a valid dance you've got to take it seriously stop saying that it's a sexy dance and um so even in our teaching we really desexualized it. You know, we taught, we made, um, you know, close embrace, so when you dance body to body, the way we taught it, we really, um, yeah, we stripped anything away about the idea of it being body to body and any sort of sensuality. It was very technical. It was like, no, your heads do not touch and you have your shoulders back and da, 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 da. And it was like a functional connection to Mm -hmm. make things work. Um, And actually quite soon we realized that because we were teaching that a lot, our dancing started lacking something between me and Adamo even for us we were like oh god like our close embraces become so disconnected really like even though our bodies are touching there wasn't a connection because mm-hmm. we'd stripped this thing away and um it was a particular book that I read called um Blue's Legacies and Black Feminism by Angela Davis. I highly recommend it to anyone. It, um, analyzes the lyrics of some blues songs by Bessie Smith, Ma Rainey and Billie Holiday. And there's an incredible section. I mean, a lot of the lyrics are very sexual in blues songs and it talks about why. And once I understood why I was suddenly able to go, okay, yeah, like there's a reason for the dance to be the way the dance is. And it's really important. So essentially what she says in the book is she talks about Sex and um, choosing your sexual partner and an expression of sexuality as being one of the most important ways that people could um, express their freedom after the emancipation of slavery. So, this is a very, very heavy topic. But obviously, during slavery, a lot of women were raped, a lot of women were, or women and men, they could not choose their sexual partner. They were essentially bred to create more slaves and so after the emancipation of slavery finally for the first time of the presence of black people in America they could choose their sexual partner they could choose who they had relationships with and so it is an absolutely fundamentally important part of an expression of freedom and so for me as a white person to take that out of the dance to go oh no I feel uncomfortable about this so therefore I'm going to get rid of it is really really problematic I realize mm-hmm. now. And so it's about for me it's going right. Okay, this this topic and this feeling is really really important and it's why the dance started. You know, it's this reason this two people wanting to be together. There's so many descriptions of early blues dancing being, you know, two bodies hanging off each other in a bar. And it's it's beautiful actually, just that feeling of like two people being together. So why should we strip that away? You know, it's not, mm-hmm. our, we, we do not have the right to take that away. But like you said, we also do need to create safe spaces and make sure that there's not sort of predatory behavior. So I guess for me, it's not about suddenly promoting their blues is really sexy. <laughs> go, and, <laughs> go and chat someone up in the blues room. Mm. But it's about, okay, what does sexuality mean? And what does what does it mean in terms of our dancing? And for me, what it means is not being ashamed of my body, And having having the ability to express my own sexuality, it's got nothing to do with anyone else. So it's like, if I want to move my hips, I'm going to move my hips and I'm not going to be ashamed of it. Mm -hmm. If I want to do a kind of grinding action, Sandra Gibson-esque movements, right? I'm going to do that and I'm not going to be ashamed of it because it's my body and it's like ownership of my own sexuality and my own body. It's not... Hey, I'm going to dance with you, and that means I want to have sex with you, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? So there's, I feel like it's a bit, there's a big difference between sexy and sexually empowered for yourself,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and that's the way that I'm approaching it at the moment. Um, I actually have recently been teaching a class called Bringing Sexy Back. Mm. We do start with Justin Timberlake <laughs> for the warm up song, of course, <laughs> <laughs> of course. Um, <laughs> But in that class, we we do exactly this. We analyze lyrics of songs. We talk about the importance of empowered sexuality sort of in history. Um, and then we look at ways that we can do that. So, you know, one thing for me, for example, I talk about the need to be really grounded. I'm like, the more grounded you are, and more, more earthy, the more power you have. And then once you've got that power, you let that power go through your body. And like, mm-hmm. maybe it's about... What part of your body do you love the most? You Mm -hmm. know, maybe it's your shoulder. Maybe you you really love your shoulder. So maybe a shoulder roll to you is really sexy. That's Mm -hmm. great. That's amazing. And that's going to make you feel amazing when you dance. And no one can take that away from you. Mm. So that's the way I'm approaching it of this like empowered sexuality in the dance. And so if I'm dancing with someone and I'm dancing in that way, it doesn't mean that I want anything from them in return. It just means that I'm feeling really good in myself right now and I'm going to move in that way
0: yes and also that empowerment i think it has to do with being able to speak up when you don't feel comfortable right so the more empowered in that way you can be that will also give you empowerment to 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 draw your boundaries to dance with people you want to and not dance with people you don't want to and kind of have the space or no space you need so like this empowerment seems to be able to translate everywhere
1: it's almost like by discussing it and allowing there to be this, allowing some elements of sexuality, of empowered sexuality to be present in the dance, We, mm. I believe it's going to be a safer space. Mm-hmm. Um, and interestingly, um, I also uh, recently qualified as a sex educator. And so this all, this was all connected to my master's degree as well, because part of that was also looking at sex and gender in education. So I looked a lot at sex education in schools and essentially it's the same thing there. It's like, rather than not talking about this stuff, the more we talk about it, the safer young people are. So it's the same in dance. I'm like, the more, like, if we stop pretending that this, the, the two bodies dancing together is if we, sorry, if we stop pretending that two bodies dancing together isn't sensual, Mm -hmm. then maybe we can allow it to be sensual, but it's safe because you're like, yeah, this is just a dance. Like Mm -hmm. we're, we're dancing in close embrace. It's really beautiful. It's three minutes. That's it. When the music ends, so does that moment. But if we pretend that that's not part of the dance and then you do have a really close dance with someone and I don't know, it gets all awkward and you don't know what to do with it. And yeah, so for me, it's about the more we can empower everyone, but particularly women, the safer the dance floor is going to be.
0: Mm. I imagine there is a challenge with that, teaching the dance and being in the dance in different cultures and different countries. Because again, every even in Europe, different countries are on a very different line of understanding of sexuality and different taboos and yeah. freedom that people feel in that. So imagine when, when traveling around, you probably see that in some countries I imagine it's a bit easier and some other places it's way more kind of hidden and harder to access.
1: Yeah, definitely. And something that we're very conscious of saying always is that any position you dance in is always consensual by both leader and follower. Obviously, Mm -hmm. I I know it should go without saying, but sadly it doesn't. You know, there's Mm -hmm. still often, there's still people out there who hold you too tight, who will leaders who think that they choose what position you dance in. So mm-hmm. for us, it's really important that we are educating people that it's consensual. If It's like a hug, right? You meet a friend in the street and you go to hug them. You don't pull them towards you and grab them and, and hold them there. You show that you would like a hug and then your friend, hopefully comes towards you and you both meet in the middle of that space and it's a consensual mm. hug and that's how we teach the sort of close embraces in in blues it's like it's something that both of you agree to both of you move your bodies in and if one of you doesn't want to that's okay You're, you know it's you, there are many other ways to dance there are many other positions to dance in um, and you don't have to dance closely to be dancing yeah. blues
0: yeah I, I almost think that maybe the popularity of blues but when I think of like Latin dances, like bachata and salsa, um, and they're so popular in places again, so far away from where they come from. And for example, in Lithuania, the bachata communities is really big. And culturally, it's it's quite foreign. Like I feel like the music is is very different. The movement, again, the sexuality and understanding the closeness. But I think the popularity of it is because it kind of gives people permission to embrace a certain part and be okay, at least in that space, maybe not in their everyday life, but in that space, they're like, I can like be sex and I can move my body the way I want to. And I can connect with someone. And that's so attractive because that's not necessarily in,
1: in your culture. 100%. Mm. Yeah. And actually, I feel like when you asked me a question earlier about what was it that attracted me to blues, Mm -hmm. probably it was that, you know, I'm a, uh, in my everyday life, Growing up in England, you know, you can't really grind your hips in the queue of the supermarket, right? But it feels so good to do it. And it was all, I suppose, blues gave me a freedom to express a part of myself that maybe within the culture I live isn't so accepted. Mm. So, yeah, yeah, completely agree. Yeah.
0: um I also want to ask about leading and following. And I want to read a little quote that I, I saw in your essay because um, it was just so beautiful in, in the way it describes partnership in African-American dances. You write, to be with somebody means to respond to them, to compliment and support their silences, to answer their remarks, clap a different pattern. And this quote in your essay, was just so beautiful. I had to like read it three times. <laughs> um, but what was kind of the impact of this idea in, in your understanding of leading and following?
1: Yeah. So this quote is from a book called Stepping on the Blues by Jackie Malone, Malone, which I recommend to anyone who dances any African-American dance form, because it's not just about blues. It's just about the vernacular dance in general. Mm-hmm. And again, this quote to me literally changed how I approach partner dancing. In In the three seconds it took me to read it, it was like an explosion went off in my head and I was like, finally, I understand. Um And this is a huge topic because I think leading and following is very cultural, actually. And I think depending on where you go, those words hold different meanings or hold different weights. Um, And generally, from like white European backgrounds and countries, leading and following means leaders are in charge. Followers do what the leader says in a very, Mm -hmm. (laughs) very simplistic way, right? So if we think ballroom dancing the leader moves the follower around the floor and the follower follows and they do, they do what they told. Um, and historically this is connected to gender because historically most, not all, but most originally most leaders would be men and followers would be women. Um, and so it was this idea of men being in charge, essentially age old patriarchy (laughs) back in play. (laughs) Um, but then when you look at, um, gender roles in african-american communities and some african communities and this is information that i got from gray armstrong from chatting to gray and gray has a great blog about this as well and also chatting to damon stone they talk about um a a more matriarchal society in in some of or quite a few um, families in african-american culture where generally the woman does have more power like they're the ones that are in charge mm-hmm. <laughs> and I think Grace says something about like it's the the mother that the kids are more afraid of and they're more in you know they have the financial power and they make the decisions so when you put the matriarchal idea into a partner dance it makes no sense that the leaders are in charge if we're thinking that it's tied to uh, tied to gender so actually it's this idea of partnership meaning something completely different depending on the culture you come from mm-hmm. and that quote you read to me is just like Absolutely. It's not about doing what someone else tells you to do. That's not a healthy partnership in Mm -hmm. any facet of life. Yeah. So it got me questioning maybe rather than teaching how to lead and follow, we should focus more on how to teach, teaching how to be a good partner. And yes, Mm -hmm. there are differences between leading and following, of course. Otherwise, why are we bothering to dance with someone else? But I think at the essence of it is how. Yeah, how do you be a good partner? And what skills do you need to be a good partner? And then once you're partnering with someone, how do you give to that? And certainly after reading that quote about the idea of um filling in their statements and clapping a different pattern, I'm like, I can I can follow my partner, I can hear what they're asking me to do, and I can respond to that, but I can respond to it my own way. Mm-hmm. Um, and that ha- yeah, completely changed how I how I partnered because I went through a real journey of of following. When I mm-hmm. <laughs> when I started partner dancing, I could not follow. Partly, I think, because I didn't necessarily want to. Mm-hmm. i had done 20 years of solo dancing. You know, I was a solo dancer and I had my ideas and I heard the music my way. And then when I was dancing with a leader um, who maybe had been dancing six months. So yes, they were more experienced partner dancer than I was. But I was like, but I want to do this. (laughs) (laughs) So that was my start in partner dancing. And then I realized, oh no, actually, I really want to be a good partner. Like I want to be a good follower. So then I committed myself to learning to follow. Like Mm -hmm. every breath my leader took, I wanted to be able to follow it. (laughs) And then I was like, God, I'm boring. I can follow, you know, I can follow a lot, but I'm not much fun to dance with anymore. And so I kind of went on this wave of, following everything, but then going, oh no, actually I want my voice back. So I started to to not follow stuff, but then, you know, maybe I would start to improvise more. But when I improvised, I stopped following and it took me years to find that balance where I'm like, oh, actually I can do both at the same time.
0: Mm. Like,
1: I can, I can listen and I can understand exactly what you're asking me to do. And I can make a critical choice in the moment of how am I going to respond to that? Am I going to do exactly what you're asking? Am I going to do it my way? Am I going to change something? right? Cause I'm 50% of the creative team as well. So yeah, it really, really changed my entire dancing and how I approach all partner dancing, just that mm. one quote.
0: And in return, you get to know the other person because when you're just following, uh, yeah, it's hard to know who that person is. Right. Or even if you're just leading again, like if there's no interaction and conversation, you don't really get to know the person. And the beauty of partner dancing is also to get to know who you're dancing with without talking, but moving together yeah. and responding to each other.
1: Yeah, it's just a nonverbal conversation. Mm-hmm. Uh, no conversation is good if one of you is silent the whole time or one of you is talking the whole time. Like, yeah. Do you think, yeah.
0: Do you think that changed also your personal relationships in life, like learning to be a better partner in dance?
1: Yeah. Yeah, mm. definitely. And I'm not sure I I, I couldn't pinpoint a time, mm-hmm. but I, yes, I'm much, much better communicator now. I listen far more now. Um, I think I'm much more just aware of other people and what other people would want and other people's points of view. And yes, I think everyone should learn to partner dance. <laughs> <laughs> yes I agree Right, it's basically Uh, couples therapy
0: (laughs) (laughs) it's true I actually met uh, I met a dancer from US who is uh, he's a great dancer Damien and he is a couples therapist and he does use partner dancing for like the dance therapy part with with the couples that he consults
1: that's amazing mm. yeah maybe it's a future career
0: (laughs) (laughs) think about it Um, do you see any inequalities still in the community when Uh, it comes to leaders and followers?
1: Sadly, yes. You know, and you'd hope like 2023, (laughs) we're all so progressive. But um, I do think, I think it's an unconscious thing though, that there are still inequalities. For example, Adama always has a queue of followers wanting to dance with him at events. And I very rarely get asked And to me even so and I think it's it's not just me it's like high level followers generally don't get asked to dance. high level leaders do or teachers who are you know leader teachers mm-hmm. versus follower teachers um and that in itself to me shows a massive inequality and it's a mentality because I still think even though we teach it and people if you were to ask them they would say, oh yeah, you know blues is equal follower leader both, you know, both have equal roles in the dance, and la la. Still, somewhere in there ingrained is leaders thinking that they have to give a good dance to their partner. And so if they don't think they can give a good enough dance, they're not going to ask you.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Whereas followers are like, oh, it's okay, I'll, I'll dance with demo. He'll like, he'll give me a good ride, essentially. And so we have this real imbalance where it's like, because I'm a teacher and a woman, I think, because mm-hmm. I would say follower, but I do think it's also related to gender, unfortunately. I mean I become intimidating. Whereas mm-hmm. Adamo as a teacher and a male and a leader, he becomes like the prize to dance mm-hmm. with. And that that that's really problematic. And I don't know how to change it because, you know, for years since we started teaching, we've been talking about the equality of, of lead and follow in the dance. And it's what we bang on about in every lesson. Um, and yet still it doesn't necessarily always happen on the dance floor. Um, so that's something I see a lot of, which is a shame. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, yeah, I think people just need to start to, maybe this idea of partnership rather than lead follow might help. You know, if you start to be like, it doesn't matter if you're leading or following, what it is, is just being a being a, a nice partner, being someone who you're going to enjoy dancing with. Um, and understanding that the other person is 50% of the dance. So if someone asked me to dance, whoever you are, we're going to have a great dance. Right? Like we're bringing 50/50. So, yeah. <laughs> it's going to be fun, <laughs> at least. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, so I see that and also I think that this is probably I don't want to presume, but I probably the same in Lindy. Um, you know, you see a lot leaders tend to progress quicker.
0: Mm.
1: So, you might have leaders in a higher level class or get through to the finals of a competition where followers who are probably possibly much better dancers are in a lower level class or don't final but because the leaders are needed Mm -hmm. they need more we need more leaders so we'll put Mm -hmm. you up even though you're not quite ready or we'll put you in the final because you're one of the best that we have but actually there are some followers who didn't final who are incredible so then there's this boosted ego With some of them because they're like, well, I'm finalist and I'm in the advanced level. I'm this and I'm that, and I don't know how. I don't know. Is that the same in in Lindy Hop?
0: Yeah, I think it's quite a similar similar situation. Also, probably that comes up to the part of the inviting, being invited to dance, because then it's so much more pressure for leaders, Mm -hmm. right? It's like you're you're asked a lot to dance, but then if if it's like the leader is going to make it or break it in a dance, it's also, it's like really stressful to be in that position. Right. But then, yeah, on the other hand, there's usually also less leaders or like they sign up later. So there is this feeling of, oh, we're in shortage of leaders constantly.
1: So they're needed. They're Mm -hmm. like in high demand always. And so I think there's pros and cons for them as well. Mm -hmm. Right. Like you said, there's a there's possibly a higher pressure on them. You know, um, certainly sometimes after a party, Adama's exhausted. He's like, I haven't sat down for a single song. (laughs) And I'm like, oh, well, you know, I I ask, I always ask. But, um, yeah, he will be in much higher demand than I will be. Um, So that's interesting.
0: And when you said about levels, is there, because in Lindy community, we're really battling with this kind of, you know, wanting to climb up the levels. Mm. Um, feeling like you belong in the highest level, being disappointed if you don't make it to the highest level in the auditions and like a bit of a bubble of this level thing. Uh, Is it similar in blues? Do people get obsessed over being in the right level?
1: Yeah, there is. Yes. I think in blues, we have a real mix of events. So some events will not have levels at all. Mm -hmm. As you know, some that will do classes based on topic so, for example, the Damo's Festival in Italy in the summer, all the classes were based around music of some description. So rhythms or a particular genre of blues um, or all sorts of different classes, all based on music. And they had a description of like how kind of how hard they might be. So he put guitars, you know, one guitar was like open to anyone. Five mm. guitars was, you know, this is going to be challenging mm-hmm. basically anywhere in between. And you just chose where you wanted to go. And it was really beautiful. And, you know, if you went to a five guitar one and it was out of your depth, well, you knew it was a five guitar class. Yeah. So it's on you in a way. Mm-hmm. Um, other, other festivals, they do do levels. Some just, you pick some have auditions. It's a real, real mix. Um, And yeah, they'll always, especially with auditions, there'll always be someone who is upset. Um, Mm. And that's probably one of the things I hate most about the job. (laughs) I hate hate it. (laughs) Um, Yeah, especially if it's a case of, okay, well, we have to put this many people in this level and there's always a few on the cusp where you're like, well, they're all basically the same but two of them have to go up and two have to go down because Mm -hmm. of numbers and then it just feels really unfair and horrible and... Oh, yeah, I hate it because you kind of know that somewhere in there you're possibly ruining someone's entire weekend. Mm. And that sucks. That really sucks. because yeah. you know, So I'm at that point now where I'm like, who am I to make that person feel rubbish? I don't, yeah. I don't have the right to make them feel bad. Mm. And so, yeah. But I think we have a lot less audition events than Lindy Hop just because we have a much smaller community. So generally self-leveling tends to work. mm.
0: Yeah. And like personally, because you started teaching quite quickly, right? And it kind of happened and it just yeah. felt like it, it went really fast. Um, you talked a bit about of like having doubts about you know, the cultural appropriation part. But like personally in the dance, um, would you have moments of kind of insecurity or trying to, you know, like doubting your dance and, and how to progress and how to work on certain things?
1: Every day. and how do you how do you deal with that um it's taken me a long time I think to actually even now I still get imposter syndrome all the time um I think the thing that enables me to carry on or the thing that makes me feel okay and like go okay now I do deserve to be here or like it is okay that I do this thing is just the feedback I suppose I get from students or the looks I see on their faces during a class where at the end, maybe we'll have a chat and I'm like, wow, I like that class really impacted that person in an amazing way. So Mm. I feel really good that I was able to provide that for that person. Um, And actually, interestingly, the other day I was out for dinner with some friends, an amazing group of women and all of their jobs are so interesting um, one of them works closely with the government and her company about like global peacekeeping. One of them um, is a criminologist and is doing a load of research in prisons. Like they do these really, really important jobs. And I sat there and I was like, oh, my God, I'm just a dance teacher. <laughs> <laughs> and I felt really like... I was having a midlife crisis, (laughs) like work crisis. I was like, I need to do something more important with my life. But they all actually are students. So that's how we know each other. Mm -hmm. And they looked at me and they're like, yeah, but if you didn't do what you do, we couldn't do what we do because you give us so much. You give us escapism. You make, you know, you give us something else to focus on. You connect us to our bodies. Like then they were like, we essentially come to you for our like downtime and our therapy. Like we couldn't cope with our jobs if we didn't have you and that was really nice to kind of go okay I do it it does make a difference and it is for a lot of people it is more than dancing um and so moments like that I'm like okay I'm okay doing this job (laughs) like Mm -hmm. I'm not the world's best dancer not the world's best teacher but I can give something good to people
0: yeah for sure and it's also something I'm really thinking about an idea of you know there's there's things that come easy to, to some people and then they're actually very difficult for others and being I think in the field of like dancing and teaching it's also not for everyone like there's I think so many people who just would not ever want to do it or imagine themselves doing that so it's also like being able to be in that position and share the knowledge or, and have empathy and try to like work on that like it is a strength that it's very individual to for example you right in this situation it's like um kind of knowing what we're good at and not
1: you know maybe it's not criminology but it's okay <laughs> something else <laughs> something else it's true yeah because I think I mean I think when something comes to you quite naturally which I do feel with teaching like I feel when I'm in a class like that's where I'm meant to be mm-hmm. I'm in my element I love it I'd never want to do anything else but I think because it comes so naturally maybe i take it for granted that actually it's a skill but I don't realize it's a skill just because it's what I do <laughs> you
0: know? yes 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 um I also want to ask a personal question about partnership um because <laughs> you mentioned that you started with Adama. Adama when you were dating and then you were dancing yeah. and now you're not together as uh, romantic partners how how is that like navigating a long partnership with each other
1: um strangely, absolutely fine. Mm -hmm. Like we, and I think, yeah, we've done amazingly well. So we dated, um, then we were actually, we were married and now we're not together anymore. Um, But we are best friends. We love each other dearly. We respect each other and we have done for the whole process. And I think the reason that we are able to do that is because our communication was so good. Because we'd trained our communication through dancing and through mm. teaching, and through so many years of working together and having to work well together, um, that we were then able to navigate this huge change in our relationship, but without fighting, without blame, without um, sort of hiding anything from each other. We were both just very open and honest with with our feelings and with how life was changing for us and we never really had a bad time. You know, Mm. never... Yes, it was difficult, obviously, whenever any breakup is difficult. But um, professionally, I don't feel like it got in the way of anything like that. Wow, Um, that's beautiful. Which was amazing, yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think um, we always say to people that actually we didn't break up, we just changed our relationship. Because I always question as well, like, what what is a successful relationship? You know, is it staying together romantically, even though maybe that's not the right thing for you, but because it lasted 50 years, it's a success, but Mm -hmm. actually you were miserable or I don't know, you know, like things weren't right. Or is it successful to go, right, you know what, our lives are changing. It's time to let go of this one part of our relationship, but then keep this other amazing part that we've built together. Um, And I think that's a success. Like, I think we're, we're now doing so well in our dancing and our teaching we run a business together we speak every day um yeah so Uh, all about communication
0: (laughs) it's beautiful like seeing you work together and dance together and um, it it looks like a very special and very beautiful connection that I I can imagine took a lot of time to develop and work on it but it's just the strength of it like you see partners and you see how strong they are not only in dancing but just as two people together
1: yeah yeah we we tell each other all the time how lucky we are to have each other mm. we still after 11 years say thank you to each other after every class we teach mm. you know thank you for teaching with me today that was really fun um we just try not to take each other for granted because i think it's very easy whether you're romantic or whether you're just a teaching partnership it's very easy after a long time to take each other for granted and then that's when things start to go wrong yes yeah.
0: uh, before we end i have uh, three rapid questions to you oh yes <laughs> um so the first one i'm curious to hear the best dance advice you have heard or received
1: i think it's the one i already said which is probably really boring but the um my university dance teacher who told me to always be a thinking dancer Mm, because that has yeah that has influenced me in my dancing you know I'm always questioning why and what if and that's how I approach my following I'm like yeah okay I I see what you're saying here but what if I did this (laughs) or like (laughs) why have you asked me to do that um but I also I try and put that into my teaching I'm always Mm -hmm. asking why why are we teaching this lesson? Why are we teaching this thing? And um, why are we teaching it the way we're teaching it? Can we do it better? So um, she's really got me to constantly question
0: mm-hmm. uh,
1: and then trying to pass that on to students as well. So getting them to understand why they do what they do. And I just think it it takes it beyond just dancing being moves, and really mm-hmm. m- creates that that thought process and, and art.
0: Right. Uh, what's the worst dance advice you've heard or received?
1: Definitely when people say it's always the leader's fault. (laughs) Oh my God, it riles me so much um, because it takes any responsibility away from the follower and is essentially saying you don't matter in this dance. And I know it comes from a nice place because I used to get told it when I was a beginner and if something went wrong in class, the leaders would always be like, oh, you know, don't say sorry. It's always the leader's fault. (laughs) Like, no, it wasn't. It was definitely my fault. (laughs) And that's okay because I'm a person too and I have input in this dance. (laughs) Um, And someone said it to me last weekend on the social floor. Still, it still happens. And I was like... (laughs) (laughs) So, um, yeah, I think it's from it comes from a good place. you know they're they're trying to be kind, but no, no, it is not always a leader's fault, definitely not. <laughs> we are fifty percent of the dance.,
0: mm. uh, and lastly, how do you define success, or what is success to you?
1: Oh, I think success to me is leaving a dance or leaving a class or getting to the end of a day with a smile on my face Mm. for whatever reason it was. If, if something, and knowing that I put a smile on someone else's face, you know, Mm
0: -hmm. Um,
1: if I finish something, uh, yeah, whether it's a dance, social dance or a whole weekend of teaching and everyone's smiling, then I've like, yeah, that was a success. Mm. I feel successful in that moment.
0: Mm. Well, this talk has definitely put a smile on my face.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Oh, I could speak to you for hours, yeah, that was so so interesting. um is is your essay available for people to read? You are the first person I've actually ever shown it to outside of university because I was too scared oh, I, <laughs> um, I i I found it so interesting. And I think
0: it would be, yeah, probably very, very interesting for people also going in a similar journey and questioning thank these things. You.
1: Well, if anyone listening to this podcast is interested, then mm-hmm. then you're more than welcome to contact me. Um, I'm all over the social medias and email and everything. Um, and I'd happily send it to people. I probably, like I said before, I'm a bit terrified of social media and what mm-hmm. it can do. Mm-hmm. So I don't want to make it public, but um, I'm very happy to send it to individuals if anyone's interested in reading more. Um, yeah, very Perfect. happy to do that. And Perfect. apparently it might be being published in a book. Yeah. <laughs> All right, that's going to be pretty public. My university university (laughs) lecturer contacted me to ask. um, There was a group of us whose essay she wanted to publish in like a a book about race politics. So let's see if that comes to fruition. I don't know.
0: Beautiful. Thank you so much for talking to me and sharing all of this today.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: Thank you for tuning in to What A Jazz Podcast. The episode was created together with the music of Dimitrio Papa, the visuals of Linda Vilniškita, and the support from the Swinging Europe Network project. You can follow our updates and the new episodes on What A Jazz Facebook page. Take care, goodbye, and
1: until next time.